I think for all of us, it's an important question as to how we develop uh, motivation and energy to go more deeply in our practice and in our lives. Um, Sometimes we may experience being very motivated uh, in doing a retreat or doing uh, a period of meditation or coming to a group like this. And at other times we may feel swept up with the pressures of daily life. And we may not always go as deeply as we might want to. We may feel somehow pushed and pulled in all sorts of ways. And I was reflecting on that myself in the last few days uh, because essentially I've been in a retreat uh, zone for about six of the last eight weeks, uh, teaching helping to teach the month of March, and then since then have taught a week-long retreat and been at a week-long retreat as a participant, which just ended last Friday. And I could uh, feel both the momentum that's built up over those weeks that, you know, of course, is uh, in addition just to a lot of years of having the interest in practice and mindfulness and cultivating wisdom and compassion. But doing a retreat tends to support that in a strong way. And I could feel both the tremendous wish to keep the energy going of the retreat and the motivation. And I could also feel just coming into daily life the pressures the sense that large numbers of people are just going around and doing their lives without much active concern for much of this, even even though it might be very good people and and really manifesting qualities of ethics and care and so forth, but not, not always having that clear motivation and feeling the pressures of large numbers of emails and things to do and this and that and really to feel the ways that that strong motivation sometimes gets lost then sometimes comes back and gets lost and comes back. And I think it's a really an important question for our practice which is that how do we keep that sense of motivation and how do we give priority to those aspirations that we often can feel quite strongly to awaken using Buddhist language, to have wisdom and compassion and the cultivation of those qualities be at the center of our lives which we sometimes can feel quite strongly. How do we help to make that more at the center of our lives. It's not easy. Few of us are contemplating going to a monastery. 
And there, some aspects of that might be a little bit easier because the question of motivation, as it were, stares one in the face. Right? But even still, it's not so easy there. You know, I remember reading the manual for novice monks at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, where Thomas Merton was a monk, and reading the um, manual that was given to people who first come in. And right at the beginning, it was said, don't think that you have abandoned the world. The world has followed you right in. (laughs) And is right there in your consciousness, more or less, was the message, you know. So even if we were contemplating that course, you know, who are doing a lot of retreats, it's still there. But it's it's a very real question, though. How do we strengthen those aspirations which we sometimes feel? And how do we do it in our daily lives? So I want to address that question, I think, this time and next time, and particularly look to the role of reflection. Of course, there are many, many ways that we can stay in touch with our deeper aspirations. Regular practice, reading, coming to groups like this, community, uh, doing retreats, not being so busy, being in nature, can bring out those deeper motivations, longings, aspirations, you know. Um, There are many ways. One way that I want to focus on particularly is the way of reflecting, of reflecting uh, often on a daily basis on what's important for us. I think the deepest insights come typically out of an opening of the mind and the heart and the body, and often in, in something like meditation, But reflection can play a very large role. Reflection guided by thinking, by words, by directing the mind in a certain way. And there are different ways ways to do that. You know, it's right at the heart of many Western traditions. Um, Plato once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Some of you know. And he talked about how it was important somehow through reflection and through deep inquiry to come to what he called a turning around of the soul from its usual preoccupations to really look at what has most depth. This is, this is from Plato. It is as if it, it were not possible to turn the eye from darkness to light without turning the whole body. So one must turn one's whole soul from the world of becoming until it can endure to contemplate reality and the brightest of realities, which we say is the good. (coughs) Education, then, is the art of doing this very thing, this turning around, the knowledge of how the soul can most easily and most effectively be turned around. It's really being turned around from a life of distraction and not really examining things, not going deeply, to a life of looking more deeply. And in the Buddhist tradition, there are quite a number of sets of reflections. You know, and one of them I'll talk about some in this talk. It's called the Ten Subjects for Daily Reflection, Teachings of the Buddha. Very, very powerful set of reflections. I'll just read a few of them. There are ten of them. 
I am no longer living according to conditioned aims and values. My very life is sustained through the gifts of others. I should strive to abandon my former bad habits. <laughs> Does regret over my conduct arise in my mind? <clears throat> Could my spiritual companions find fault with my conduct? All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma. Whatever karma I should do for good or ill, that I will be the heir. The days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Do I delight in solitude or not? Has my practice borne fruit with freedom and insight? That's a whole set of reflections. I'll come back to some of those um, this morning. And there's another very powerful set of reflections which I want to focus on more and which comes from the Tibetan tradition. And it's called the four thoughts which turn the mind to the Dharma, sometimes called the four reminders. And the four are first to reflect on the preciousness of a human life. Second, to be deeply aware of impermanence and the reality of death. Third, to know that our thoughts and actions matter, that how we act how we think determines our future states of consciousness and our future actions as well as the actions of others. And that's really classically, that's about what's called karma. And fourth, to know the suffering involved with not awakening the suffering involved with being caught in cycles of reactivity, the cycles of suffering linked with greed, hatred, and delusion, and to really tune in to that. This is sometimes classically known as reflections on the defects of samsara. Samsara is the cycle of confused or deluded existence. So I want to talk about these reflections and help us to explore what they mean and invite us, if we feel so called, to bring them into our practice in the next week. And we can do that in a very simple way, simply by reflecting on these themes for 10 minutes a day. It actually has an impact when we do it every day. And I'll talk more about how to practice later. And the, so these reflections, which I'll explore in, in a little while, are really reflections that, when they work, give some urgency to our lives and to our sense of practice. They are not intended to be reflections by which we criticize ourselves harshly or beat ourselves up. And they can be misused. And maybe if we reflect, some of that may happen. 
But the real intention is to develop a kind of urgency which doesn't come out of the superego, but out of more out of our guts and more out of our authentic aspirations. And, and being in touch and distinguishing those can be a process that we, that we go through. But it's really an invitation that helps our practice to gain more energy and to expand. We can ask questions like, do I compartmentalize my sense of spirituality? Are there some places where I'm really aware and mindful and I meditate, and other places where it goes out the window? For most of us, something like that is the case. And so it's not, again, not to be overly judgmental about that, but just to be honest. So what these are about are really honest reflections and honest assessments that are meant in a way to unsettle us somewhat. These are not feel-good reflections. They are meant to be somewhat unsettling, but in a positive way. And so what I'd like to do, I think this week, is focus especially on the first two, and then next week on the the, uh, third and fourth. So I'll repeat again what these are and say a little bit about the context, and then I'll just go right into these reflections. So the first reflection is on the preciousness of of a human life. The second is on impermanence and the fact of death. The third is classically on karma, and I have been interpreting that as that our thoughts and our behaviors have impact. They matter. Our moment-to-moment experience and what we do moment-to-moment really, really matters. It has an effect. Every moment matters. And the fourth is to reflect that to the extent that we're caught in cycles of suffering and delusion, it's lousy. Translation of a Buddhist technical term. <laughs> but it's really an invitation to reflect on that. So in the, in the Tibetan tradition, these uh, are called sometimes the four mind turnings or the four thoughts that turn the mind to dharma. And they are actually offered at the very beginning of the spiritual path. They're taken as completely foundational. In other words, our motivation, our being in touch with our deeper aspirations is taken to be something that's crucial right at the beginning and it's foundational throughout the path as well. And so these are sometimes called general or uh, outer preliminary practices, these reflections. But as we can see, they're not particularly beginning. <laughs> you know, they can really deepen us wherever we go. And many of the great practitioners in that tradition in Tibet would continually come back to these reflections or in probably many, many cases, it would be a part of daily practice to tune into this. Even though at the beginning one tunes in for a longer time, you might reflect on this several times a day when one's beginning practice for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or half an hour. 
really to stay with it. It might be to, to reflect in one's own way, or it might be to read text on this. But it's a very powerful practice, and it's one that I personally have used um, quite a lot. And it's resonant with other practices in, again, in many traditions, which I'll mention. So the first of these is to realize the, what's called the preciousness and rarity of a human life. And in the traditional cosmology, it's taken that, uh, that the traditional cosmology in Buddhist tradition, and as in many other traditions, has a sense of continual rebirth. And said to actually be born a human being is quite rare. You know, there's this idea, look at all the other animals, look at all the insects, all the microbes. There's this sense of continual rebirth, you know, and in the text, you know, whether you believe this or not is another matter, but in the text, you know, if you uh, basically blow your human chance, you get reborn as a dog or maybe as a, you know, a centipede or something like this, where there's much less of a chance to awaken. And so this, uh, however we, we see this, it's taken to be actually quite rare. And in this, in the Buddhist tradition, there are powerful images used. And one that's used is that, that we, we, uh, we don't see how rare it is. We take being human and being in our lives somewhat for granted. And it's said that to actually be born a human is as rare as a turtle swimming on the oceans and coming up once every hundred years, what is the chance of it sticking its head into a yoke that is floating somewhere on the ocean? Every hundred years it comes up somewhere. And what's the chance of actually sticking its head through the yoke? That's the chance of being born a human. So it's meant to say, this is important. Uh, use it wisely, you know. And the the uh, one of the reasons for this is it's taken that to have a human life is it has in general it's the right situation to cultivate wisdom and compassion. That there is enough suffering, so we're somewhat interested but there's not too much suffering, so we're overwhelmed. And we also have intelligence, we have certain perspective, we have the right balance of suffering. And of course, this differs in different countries. So in the classical reflections, there's also the reflection, not only am I born a human, but I'm born for most of us in a situation where I have time and a situation where I can cultivate wisdom and compassion. It's not always the case. There are many countries where one can't practice in, a, in an open way, where there's not, we might say, spiritual freedom. You know, I traveled to the uh, former Soviet Union uh, twice, and I met people there who were put in prison in the 1980s for practicing yoga. There are 
I think we know there have certainly in history uh, religious or spiritual freedom has probably been the exception rather than the norm you know, in the world. We are at a place where we have a high degree of freedom. So in the classical teachings about the preciousness, it's said there are certain favorable conditions and there are certain unfavorable conditions. If we have the favorable conditions, we should realize that. We should also realize that they don't necessarily last. Last, we have, for example, we have a certain degree of um, social peace. We have conditions where we can practice. You know, there are conditions we can imagine happening in the world where it might not be so easy. Five years, ten years, we don't know. We don't know what the future is. Right now, there's an opportunity to cultivate the heart, the mind, the body. And you know, I was reading in the, in the newspaper this morning there's a new book by Isabella Allende, who lives in Marin. And she was reflecting, I read in the review, of how quickly things change, of how she was living in Chile. In 1973, she said, one day it was a beautiful country, and the next day there were concentration camps you know, in, in Chile. And we don't know how things change. We don't, know, we don't know the way things go. And we can also reflect that we do enjoy a certain amount of freedom or a certain amount of um, uh, prosperity that permits us to have some leisure to practice. Not everyone does. People who are uh, all the time thinking of survival can't really practice so well. You know, it's on uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs spiritual fulfillment comes after survival needs and certain other needs have been met. So if we have these favorable conditions, you know, we have relative health, not everyone has health. Not everyone has health enough to practice. And so this reflection on the preciousness of human life is in part a reflection on, are the conditions good for me? I should have some gratitude for that. You know, I can realize and not take them for granted not take my situation for granted. And so I can really, in a way, um, sit with that reflection on preciousness. It may, it may lead to a kind of gratitude. And we can actually deliberately cultivate gratitude by, by reflecting on what we're grateful for. It's a practice that I, I do every day and have done for a number of years where I just write out what I'm grateful for and it actually uh, gladdens the mind. It actually is a practice that actually is conducive to the settling of our consciousness. You know, whatever the troubles are, there's a lot to be grateful for. Sometimes we lose perspective, right? We can lose perspective easily. I know I do. I was trained to focus on all the problems in the situation. Anyone else? <laughs> it goes hand in hand, by the way, with the judgmental mind. <laughs> So, uh, and so also we have, as many people expressed, or a few people expressed in our uh, group practice at the end of the sitting, we can be grateful for having a center here. We can be grateful for having been instructed in this beautiful contemplative practice. You know, and generally, 
contemplative practices have not been accessible until recently in all in this in Western culture, in through all the traditions. It's been marginalized or lost in Judaism and Christianity. You know, the contemplative dimensions, hard to find. You know, you could find them if you knew where to look, but not there in the churches or synagogues. And so it's, it's tremendously fortunate, I believe, to have accessible practice, have a retreat center that was just built a little over 10 years ago, right? And we are here. We have these opportunities, right? When I was first practicing in the late 70s, I met people who were deeply motivated spiritually. And they did not have the opportunity to connect with teachers. And they had suffered. They had this deep motivation, and they had gone through years of being lost, maybe in the 50s or 60s. I met a few people like that who were now kind of finding opportunities, but they were lonely. They would get stuck in their practice for five years or 10 years. We have opportunities. We can be grateful, and you can see where these reflections are going. They're meant to give us a perspective, but also to say the conditions are good. Take advantage of them. Right? Don't just assume they'll always be there or that our health will always be there or that we'll always be able to do this or we'll always have time. We won't necessarily. You know, so it, you can see this is meant to be somewhat unsettling, to really invite us to look and to look honestly. And again, not meant to say, oh my God, I'm really not using my time well. I'm bad. I'm, I should give up. It's not meant to go in that direction, and if we go there, we should be mindful. It's meant to, again, develop a kind of healthy and relaxed urgency, not a super-ego-driven urgency. <laughs> so that's an important point, and we'll come back to that. So the second area that I want to focus on for the rest of the talk is that of impermanence and death which is taken to be one of the most powerful areas that we can reflect on. Again, can be unsettling to really look into that. There's a chant that's done every day in Buddhist monasteries, which goes like this. Anicca watasankara Upatawa yadamino, upakitawa niruchanti, desang upasamo sukho. It means all conditioned things are impermanent. They have the nature to arise and pass away. Being attuned with this truth brings the deepest happiness. That's chanted every day, reflection on impermanence. In the Tibetan tradition, reflection on impermanence is said to be the second best reflection. The first is developing insight into emptiness. But reflection on impermanence is also accessible in a different way, probably more accessible. And we may take impermanence to be kind of obvious, right? From an intellectual point of view, it is. Does everything change? True or false? True. Okay, everyone's got it, right? <laughs> Done with that one. <laughs> but it's not so easy, is it? Because we may know it intellectually, but there are many ways that we don't reflect on impermanence. Um, there may be 
ways that we think that our lives will more or less last like they are forever. Does anyone feel that kind of tendency? We have a total best case scenario and, and we um, thinking, and that's not necessarily the case. Our lives can change, you know, as we were, as we were reflecting earlier. Um, we can look at impermanence at a gross level. We can look at it at a more subtle level. At a more gross level, we can see how the seasons are changing. We can really reflect on how everything arises and passes. Human beings arise and pass. Trees arise and pass. The seasons come and go. And to tune into that and reflect on that is said to be one of the most powerful meditations and reflections. We can see how countries rise and fall. You know, empires rise and fall. We may be witnessing the general decline of the United States. We don't like to look at at that, but we can look at this culture and country in terms of impermanence. And of course, we don't exactly know, but it's not hard to see a lot of signs. You know, empires typically fall when they get overstretched militarily. Not hard to see that. Of course, we're going to be different, <laughs> right? We're going to do, we're going to do it differently, and so we can look at that. We can look. We can really tune into impermanence like that. We can reflect on the fact that everything that we value will come to an end. And that's not to make us morose, because we can also reflect on what's wonderful and beautiful in what's there. This isn't meant just to focus on the negative, but it is a tuning in to the extent to which things do change. And of course, the motivation for focusing on impermanence is what? It's to invite us not to grasp as much, not to grab hold of that which is impermanent. And this is why this is in the classical teachings. This is why reflection continually on impermanence is so important, because it's taken to ease our sense of grasping and have more of a sense that everything arises and passes, and it's more conducive to our well-being to be deeply attuned to that truth, not to enjoy something when it's there, but to see: Am I grasping on to this? relationship, as if that will bring me happiness for these material things, for this scenario. And of course, that can bring some hap- those can bring some happiness, but the pointing is towards a quality of peace that goes beyond any of those, where the deepest happiness resides and the deepest um, refuge really is. We don't take refuge in grasping after things, in other words. <laughs> and, we can, and so it's an invitation, to what extent do I take refuge in grasping after things that are impermanent? Is that a good idea? <laughs> That's where the reflection can go. And again, not to be heavy-handed, or, uh, but it's just, it's just to have us say, let me look honestly at this phenomenon 
and ask, what do I want and what's wise? And what touches my deeper aspirations? And we can also tune in to that quality of impermanence at a more subtle level in the moment-to-moment change of our consciousness. It's it's an interesting meditation, and maybe I'll invite it right now, just for 15 seconds. Notice right now how your experience is changing moment-to-moment. Don't try to do anything. Just track, as best you can, things changing. Could be there's a body sensation, there's this happening, there's that happening. Let everything go and track for 15 seconds your experience. And that can be a very powerful experience. You can do it for a minute or so. You know, when, we, when our mind's concentrated, we can stay with that for an hour or longer. But we can even, I think, as it were, in our uh, everyday state, we can tune in for a minute or so and just really track. Did you notice how there's one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing like that? Things happening quickly, right? We can notice, we can tune in on that. When we look at that more subtle level, we can see how our language tends to make us think there are solid, unchanging objects. For pragmatic purposes, we use language to simplify, you know? There's, um, and we, we think there's one thing that's unchanging. But we know, for example, that we know our bodies, for example, that we're always losing parts of our skin, right? <laughs> if I touch this bell, part of Donald ends up on the bell, <laughs> right? We know that on a, on a, uh, a very small part, luckily. <laughs> but our language makes us think that everything is solid and staying the same, and we know from science that's not the case. Things are changing much more than we think. And we can tune into that level of change. It's quite, it's quite interesting to do that, to really see and we can, when our minds get quiet, we can see, we can have the lived experience of things happening very quickly. We can get a sense of how our ordinary way of looking at the world is a kind of construction supported by language and driven by almost pragmatic purposes, but it may not be the most accurate way to see things. That when we're, minds are very quiet, we can see this continual change at a more subtle level. And that also becomes a reason not to grasp, my gosh, things are changing. They're really moving all the time. The other side of this second reflection is that on death. And it can be also be very powerful because the reflection on death is to remind us that I will not be the sole exception to the fact that everyone dies. Sorry to bear the bad news. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's always interesting to ask the question of a group, how many of you will die? And 
when I do that, usually I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily do it here, put you on the spot, but, but, <laughs> but often when I've done that, the hands go up very slowly. <laughs> it's very, you know, what is that about, right? Very interesting, very, very interesting to do that. And reflection on death can really lead to a sense of urgency and can sometimes lead to a sense on the way to urgency, it can lead to some inner turmoil or, or difficulty. I wanted to read excerpts from a very powerful poem by Allen Ginsberg. He wrote this about four years before he died. And this is, it's a poem called After Lalon. Lalon was a wandering Bengali um, uh, singer, I believe, of the 19th century. I think he wrote this, I think, uh, I got the feeling he wrote this in the middle of the night one, one evening. So it has that kind of middle of the night energy. So just be aware. It's true I got caught in the world. When I was young, Blake tipped me off. <laughs> Other teachers followed. Better prepare for death. Don't get entangled with possessions. That was when I was young, I was warned. Now I'm a senior citizen and stuck with a million books, a million thoughts, a million dollars, a million loves. How will I, how, how will I ever leave my body? Allen Ginsberg says, I'm really up Shit's Creek. <laughs> now I'm an old man and I won't live another 20 years, maybe not another 20 weeks. It's 2 a.m. and I got to get up early and taxi 20 miles to satisfy my ambition. How did I get into this fix, this workaholic showbiz meditation market? If I had a soul, I sold it for pretty words. If I had a body, I used it up, spurting my essence. If I had a mind, it got covered with love. If I had a spirit, I forgot when I was breathing. If I had speech, it was all a boast. If I had ambitions to be liberated, how would I get into this wrinkled person? What a mess I am, Allen Ginsberg. Sleepless, I stay up and think about my death. Certainly it's nearer than when I was 10 years old and wondered how big the universe was. If I don't get some rest, I'll die faster. <laughs> if I sleep, I'll lose my chance for salvation. Asleep or awake, Allen Ginsberg's in bed in the middle of the night. And the last part of the poem, I had my chance and lost it. Many chances and didn't take them seriously enough. Oh yes, I was impressed, almost went mad with fear. I'll, I'd lose the immortal chance. One lost it. Allen Ginsberg warns you, don't follow my path to extinction. What year is that, Donald? Uh, 1992. Yeah. That's a strong poem, right? But I think we can hear that. I hear that as, uh, I can hear it both as hearing that poem from him and his reflection, but it, for me, it spurs me. You know, it, it brings about some of that urgency. He's saying, um, maybe I wish I had done some other things. And this isn't, again, these reflections aren't meant to engender despair. They're meant to engender energy and urgency at any age. Because you know, that's really that's the other 
aspect of this practice is that it's really about the moment. It's really about taking advantage of the moment. It's not about making some assessment and then choosing, did I do well or not? It's about seeing wherever you are, there's always room in the moment to keep going. And it's really a question of prioritizing. And so these, this reflection on death can be very powerful. It can really invite us to ask, am I living as fully as I want to? You know, one, I used to teach courses on death and dying. And one exercise we used was to imagine ourselves on our deathbed. And the question we typically ask is, have I lived well? Have I lived as I, wanted, as I want to live? And placing ourselves there can really invite that kind of reflection, can help cut through our complacency. You know, it's like that one of the reflections of the ten subjects for daily reflection from the Buddha. The days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? It really can be something that we ask. And so, how do we practice with all of this? How do we practice with these reflections? And I, I think next time I'll cover the, 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 the third and fourth of these reflections and maybe do a little bit of review on the first two. So how do we practice? We can be mindful of these areas, of these four areas where I'm inviting for the next week, just to reflect on the preciousness of human life and reflect on impermanence and death. And just sit, however you do that, for 10 minutes a day. It can be very powerful just to sit and look at that, maybe to read something that brings that up. The Buddha says, mindfulness of death, when developed and pursued, is of great fruit and great benefit. Therefore, you should develop mindfulness of death. So it could be that we reflect on this. We could do uh, specific practices where we look into impermanence in that very short exercise like I did. We can reflect, do, reflect on uh, our own death and, think, and just think about that, think about where we are. Um, one practice that I do, have done on retreat, is to imagine that this is my last moment right now. I've sometimes done that for, for days on retreat. It really has an effect. This is my last moment now. How do I wish to live? Some of you know Stephen Levine wrote a book called One Year to Live, which can really help with those kind of reflections. So there are a number of different practices that we can do that can help, again, the aim is to develop the kind of urgency that comes out of our deeper aspirations. It's also really to give some further, uh, what, um, encouragement of our deeper aspirations. Sometimes our deeper aspirations can really be center stage, and sometimes they're a little bit marginal, right? And so all of this is trying to say, can I have that aspiration, that the part of me that really wants to go deeply, to awaken, to develop in wisdom and compassion, can I uh, nourish that? Can I let that be bigger? And in my experience, this can be a gradual process. It's really about asking, what are my priorities? I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one work with people. A large part of the work is helping people to get aligned with their deeper priorities. It's not easy. Right? 
It's not easy. We get distracted. How do I get aligned with my deeper priorities so they, get, they structure my life more and more? This is one way to do that, this set of reflections. Again, 10 minutes can go, go a long way. And it's, in the end, developing a kind of relaxed sense of urgency. Maybe I'll close just with two kind of poetic expressions of that, of that relaxed urgency. One is from the great Tibetan uh, practitioner Milarepa. His advice was to hasten slowly. <laughs> and the second is from the poet Gary Snyder. And he said it's something about practicing as if your hair is on fire and you have all the time in the world. It's like the kind of like the two sides. Can we hold that and have have this help to really spark that which that deeper aspiration? That's really the intention here. So let's just sit for about a minute or so and then we can have some discussion together. So thank you for your attention. And I'll invite any questions, comments, reflections. Please. Well, first of all, I want to say that the Dharma talk really spoke to my heart. And uh, I see the change in you. I saw you when you started and coming along. So that's something that I was thinking about. And I also thought that I wanted to grasp to a lot of the things that you said. Like I wanted the poem to take home. And Yeah. Uh, again, and I will. Yeah. Maybe. I to show it yeah. And another thing I wanted to share, I went on Monday night, I came to hear Yvonne Nguyen. I don't like that. Can people hear me? Not no. No. So maybe, I think it's not on. Um, well, I, you have to put it right up to your mouth. <laughs> there should be two switches to turn on. <laughs> A light should go on. So, yeah, lately I'm also dealing with things but because I'm coming for a long time here and um, sometimes I think, do I just, you know, just make a hollow uh, um, hole or I wanna, how much do I want to dig? Do I need to struggle, maybe just accept being the moment? But um, some interesting thing that Yvonne Wen said about death. Um, she, so I thought how to cut through you know, how can I cut through? And I took some measures to cut through my stuff differently than just coming here. Mm. And she said about death, she's collecting dead animals 
mm. for example. And she, she goes, if she sees an animal dies in the, on the road, on the freeway, she stops and she takes it home, and her house is full of dis decomposing animals that are dying. <laughs> I said it to my husband, and I want to put one in the bedroom, but he wasn't. Anyway, <laughs> so... <laughs> so she talked about that, and, and she... Um, she talked about the maggots and some animals take them a long time and the smell and all of those things, which they do a lot in Asia to cut through. They, they are not so comf comfortable as we are here. Yeah. And um, so it's just something that I was thinking, um, and, and of course, when I heard it first, I saw how my body reacted to all of that and how, um, how far I want to go to cut through and to get and in, in this lifetime. So, so those, um, those thoughts are going through my mind now. How, do I, how mm. do I get the urgency and doing things that really cut through and also stay balanced and, and yeah. not struggle and being the middle? So it's the same thing, but um, Great. just different versions of yeah, the same thank you. theme. Thank you. <laughs> very, very helpful reflections. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that one reflection which uh, uh, actually one of my first teachers and mentors, uh, Larry Rosenberg, who's on the East Coast in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, and he uh, actually has done a book on, uh, on, on death and dying and, and the Dharma. And I one thing I remember he used to do is he used to watch old movies and reflect that everyone in the movie is now dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Simple reflection. Because it's, it is, it is t it, classically, it's taken to be one of the <coughs> cores of practice, you know. And so one of, the, one of the meditations which we don't do so much is to, uh, which is there in the classical instructions on mindfulness, is to sit with a decomposing body. You know, and, you know, many practitioners in Asia would spend a lot of time in charnel grounds, you know, just to become more acquainted with that. And I think I think there's a different consciousness there. Yeah. But even even to do it in small ways, that's what what's really being invited. But the main the main thing is, you know, the larger question is what helps bring a sense of more urgency, or that kind of cuts through some of our complacency. That's really the, the larger question. Yeah, thanks. Other questions, reflections? Um, maybe you could pass the, the mic. Okay. Yeah. One here and then and then Marty. Um, right, right here. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. So I've spent a lot of time cultivating Close serenity it. and tranquility. Yeah, there you go. Closer to your mouth. It, you're, you're fine. It's on. Mm -hmm. It was on. She just needs to put it closer to her mouth. Uh, and this whole thing of, of cultivating urgency seems to go against the grain of cultivating serenity and the clear mind. And is there another phrase? I mean, like going deeper? Or, but the cultivating urgency seems to be like the oxymoron, where mm -hmm. you know it's like it's against serenity and tranquility. Yeah. How do you balance those? Yeah, it's a great question. Is is developing a sense of urgency? Is that uh, does that imply that we're not so balanced or not so serene? I think it's something like uh, it, it can be paradoxical in the way we use language, as in those last two 
quotations that I gave, hasten slowly, right? Um, and, and some of it may be a matter of translation, you know, or are there better, is there a better, can we have a sense, I think we can have a sense of urgency using the English language in which the urgency is, is relaxed or balanced. Um, you know, it was very, uh, but, but you're right, I think commonly when we have urgency, maybe, maybe not for you, the connotations are different of words for people. So maybe find a different word that, that's helpful. It could be the real aim is to uh, be, you know, we could say prioritize. That's a more, maybe new, more neutral word. Um, prioritize so you're living out of what's really most important for you. That's, that's another way of saying it. Um, um, but, but it's also, uh, I think there's also the sense, uh, and this will especially come out in what we explore next week, that every moment matters. And so there is, that's, that's some of the urgency. It's not like uh, I can wait, really. And so what's, what's language which would express that better? Because I think for me, I can, I don't have pro- I can be urgent and relaxed. But not, now, doing it's another matter, but I'm just saying in, in the connotations of the words, I think it's possible. But yeah, find other words, maybe. Yeah, Marty that has, was something I wanted to has a solution. To. Let's give her the, the I mic. I think I have your voice <laughs> Is this on? Yeah. Uh, I think what happens is that the mind gets control of this word urgency and wants to figure it all out and wants to see what the roadmap is and what I have to do and how am I going to get there and it's just totally overwhelming. And I think what has to happen and what I find works for me is to trust that if I'm just present right here in a relaxed way that the path is going to open. And it doesn't have anything to do with figuring it out in my mind. It just has to do with being here right now, open and present, and that things just kind of work out. And I, I find that that's happening for me. So that's, that's my experience. Thanks, Marty. And, and I was also reflecting that um, not that much hinges on whether we use the word urgency or not. That was just a descriptor meant to apply to some of what this can lead to. But the real point is, uh, is to do the reflections. And, and the reflection, and, you know, we could use the word, let these spark you. Let these uh, encourage you. Let these support you. But the main, the main purpose is not so much to worry about, oh, do I feel a sense of urgency? It's to actually reflect, in this case, on the preciousness of human life and on impermanence and death and let it go where it goes. So if, if not to get hung up by the word, mm-hmm. but, but just, to, just to really give oneself to the reflections. Yeah, thanks. Just a- we have two more, and then I think we'll... A reflection that I have was um, my husband died five years ago this month, and I realized what I needed to do for myself was to get more comfortable with death. Mm -hmm. 
So <clears throat> I volunteered for hospice for the last four years. Mm. Well, what I've discovered recently is that I've gotten complacent with that too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now I think I really need to do those 10 minutes every day of, yeah. <coughs> of really contemplating it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And uh, Lisa, the last, uh, last reflection or question in the back. Anyone know the impermanence of the light? <laughs> or the weather? The weather? <laughs> I, I have a problem with the word urgency, too, because for me, it always implies fear. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a similar problem with the, when, in a 12-step program with the idea of God's will. Mm -hmm. And I always feel kind of like pushed by it. Or, and when I learned to change that to God's intention or the goddess's intention in my yeah. case, the word intention just was much more skillful for me mm -hmm. and enabled me to really feel that there's, I, well, I can imagine a conflict between God's will and my will. I can't imagine a conflict between my intention and the goddess's intention. And the same thing, I'm not sure what the word is to use instead of urgent. Mm -hmm. Maybe intention is part of it. I do think from the little that I've read in the Buddhist text that there really, urgency really is the right translation for mm -hmm. that. I mean, there's a lot in the Buddhist stuff about learning to become disgusted with the body and all kinds of stuff that I'm not interested in cultivating. And I think that that, that there is a way in which it's considered skillful to be afraid that you're going to lose this opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I don't think for me that works. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, maybe this is one of those American Buddhist things where for some of us, the traditional teachings work, and for some of us, mm -hmm. We're just either we're not ready for them, and maybe yeah. I'm just too full of fear to be ready for that teaching, or maybe it's just never going to be. It's just not my um, mm -hmm. psychology for that to work for me. Well, thanks, Lisa. Um, yeah, I actually I must um, hold the word urgency differently because I don't. For me, it doesn't. Ha ha it's not linked with fear necessarily, and I don't think um, I'll, I'll do some further research on that for next time, but. Um, I, don't, I don't think that fear is necessarily there in that sense of urgency. You know, and there's, there's, there is a word in Pali, and I'll, I'll look into other translations. There's a word called samvega, which is usually translated as urgency. Uh, but, but certainly, to me, where this is pointing to is not to be uh, um, moved by fear because that would be taken to be moved by our reactivity. And that's not skillful. So I think it comes more out of, uh, I think that certainly the direction of this is to come more out of a balanced place. But, uh, but I think that these questions are very interesting. And I think it's not necessarily, I think there are aspects in the tradition where, where some of this may be from having uh, discussed at certain aspects of life and so forth. I think, that, I think that's present. And I agree that uh, uh, Westerners don't much go for that. <laughs> That's, and, and I don't think I think um, I don't think we need to go there to get the import of this because to me it's really about asking. Uh, it doesn't. It's really about asking what are my priorities, 
and how do I live them? What are my priorities? What's important? How can I take the fragile seeds of my deeper aspirations, the sometimes fragile seeds, and let them grow? That's another way to say it, because sometimes my, you know, the part, you know, and we can express it in different ways. It, you know, we could express this as how can my love develop? How can I have love more at the center of my life than it is, right? Could be, that's another way of saying exactly the same thing. And how can that seed grow? And how can it grow in a world which doesn't seem to run by love? You know? I mean, a lot of things in our minds can come up, you know. Um, how can I have tenderness and sensitivity and compassion and empathy be stronger and stronger for me when sometimes that seems hard to live like that in the world? I mean, there are other questions that come up, right? But for me, this is all about how do I touch my deeper aspirations, let them grow, and have my life unfold more and more from my depths as opposed to from my conditioning. That's a way of saying it which I think can fit with any way that we work on some of the issues that you brought up. Um, And that's really what this is aiming for. So I think by all means uh, use language in a way which supports your own deepening, for sure. I think that's something, something we've learned just from this last uh, discussion, that the language isn't, and it's something we, I think we know in a lot of other contexts in terms of practice. And so that's, that's what I would uh, invite us to stay with. And really, uh, if this felt useful to you, uh, make a commitment just to do 10 minutes a day of some kind of reflection on the preciousness of human life, impermanence and death in your own way, whatever, whatever way that helps. And um, I'll look forward to continuing. I'll do a little more work myself on some of these issues and, um, and reflect some and bring that up some and then present more. I'll do a review, I think, of the first two. I had a lot of poems and stuff I didn't even get to, <laughs> which I'll probably bring in next time, but then reflect also on the third and the fourth. So next time I'll give brief review of the first two and then talk about the third and fourth in more depth. So let's just sit quietly to finish. No, I think uh, I had intended Lisa was the last one. Okay, yeah, it, it, it is time. But if you can reserve it for next time, that'd be great. Okay, cool. So let's just sit for just sit for a minute. So taking what may have been helpful from the morning and any intentions of your own, if you have that intention to reflect or have any thoughts or comments that didn't have a chance, if you can note those. We also reflect at the end about how we explore this territory and enter into these reflections, not just for ourselves, but also for others, knowing that quality of interdependence 
of our lives with the lives of others. And we offer the benefits of our time together out into the world for the healing and freedom of all beings. Thank you, and to be continued. <laughs> and if there was anyone with a, a question, and, and you could either bring it up next time, or if you want to, just come up uh, right now. I'll be here for a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.